This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Today, I have a fabulous person for you to share more information about Lyme disease. As you know, I'm in the middle of the throes of it, and I am trying to bring to you very relevant and interesting people associated with this horrific disease that is more prevalent than your doctor will know. Most doctors know. And it could be the reason for the ailments and little things going on in your life that you may not know about. So I have a fabulous man today. His name is Bruce Freeze, and he began his work as an advocate for Lyme patients in 2014 by conducting a series of campaigns focused on exposing the harm caused by the IDSA guidelines for Lyme disease. IDSA is the Infectious Disease Society of America. In 2015, he founded the Patient-Centered Care Advocacy Group to advocate for research, policies, and funding to improve the federal government's response to the epidemic of Lyme and Lyme-related tick-borne diseases. His current focus is on fostering collaboration between stakeholder organizations and federal agencies to advance research on Lyme disease so much information here. We're going to try to keep it at a basic level. Bruce is a wonderful person with so much in his background. So welcome, Bruce. Well, hey, good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I'm like that crazy lady that just like reached out to you and said, I have this podcast. I want you to be on it. So thank you for agreeing to speak with me. We had a lovely conversation last week. And I learned so much more. There's just so much this. I walked away from that conversation with my head just spinning with all the information. And I thought I knew a lot, but there's so much more. So Bruce, let's start with how you became an advocate for Lyme disease. Like, how did this start? And men we know have second wins. And you actually said to me, well, this is perfect because this is my second wind, what I'm doing now. Exactly. I think I've had a couple second wins, but this is the biggest second wind. So I was in the computer systems business. I did uh, workflow consulting for companies to improve the productivity. I got burned out. So around 2000, I decided to take a working sabbatical where I would do things that I liked, like camping and more gardening rather than wait till I'm retired. You know, why not spend some time on these physical activities? So I worked on the two farms, spent a lot of time with horses, did a lot of hiking, cave exploration. That was one of my biggest hobbies, digging into, getting into caves that had never been visited before by humans, and then mapping them and doing geologic studies. Caves like dark and 
stony and cold caves. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. The camaraderie, the thing that I work was very stressful in the computer industry. So I wanted to do something where I was still connected with groups of people. So there's a lot of camaraderie and then, you know, so I spent some of the time, you know, at the farm next door, early next door to where I grew up, maintaining fences, feeding the horses and so forth. And I was outside a lot. Mm. And in 2007, my knee got this really swollen. It was the size of a grapefruit. So I didn't know anything about tick-more diseases or a clue of anything. So I went to an orthopedic doctor who examined me, prescribed physical therapy, a painkiller. I was on crutches for several months. Like, could you come up with a, like, did you tweak your knee? Did you fall? Did, did you do something wonky with your knee? Well, that's what I thought. It might've been a combination because back then I was driving a manual transmission. So mm. that knee was my, you know, for my clutch. Now it may have been coincidence, but I just went by what the doctor recommended. And he was a very competent doctor, but he has not been educated. I know now that the swelling on the knee or large joints is a common symptom of Lyme disease. So I had that swelling. It moved from one knee to the other and it went back. Did like the one knee hurt and then it stopped hurting and it went to the other knee? Yeah. So that is one of the common symptoms of Lyme disease is migratory joint swelling, usually the large joints like the knees or the elbows. Around that time, I also started experiencing flu-like symptoms, but I wasn't coughing or sneezing or anything. So, you know, I just thought it's the flu. I'll get over it. You just and tired and... Yeah, just tired and tired and achy. Mm -hmm. And then I got better somewhat. Two years later, I got uh, bit by another tick. Now, when I first got Lyme, I never saw the tick, but I know now that it, you know, that comes from a tick. But two years later, I got bit from another tick and I got a co-infection called Babesia, which is an infection of the red blood cells, which can be transmitted by ticks along with Lyme. And then I went to an urgent care center. They gave me a Lyme test and I was very strongly positive, mm. uh, but they didn't test for this other disease called Babesia. So I got treatment, which supposedly is effective for Lyme, you know, 28 days of antibiotics. And I thought, okay, I'm better. Nothing more to worry about. Yeah. That's what happens. You get the antibiotics and you kind of like push it down a little bit. Yeah. So with Lyme. It's really usually more than just Lyme. Lyme by itself can be serious. Uh, it can even cause heart complications. But when it's combined with other infections and environmental toxins like mold, it's just like the perfect storm. So I had Lyme plus one co-infection, but it wasn't until 2013, six years after I had the swollen joints, that I finally found a doctor who understood tick-borne diseases and was able to get me better. During that time period, I saw six other doctors who were very dismissive about even the possibility of Lyme. One doctor who was supposedly an infectious disease specialist, when I went to see her and said, I've heard about, you know, Lyme disease and I've had these symptoms and she Right off the bat, she said, I'm not going to give you antibiotics. Like I was a junkie asking for drugs and I, I'm like, I, I'm not asking for antibiotics. I just want to help, you know, get help getting better. I get better. Yeah. Well, so 
in 2013, I had a couple of years where I was doing very well, but then in 2013, something triggered a bad relapse and I was really sick. I had a congestion in my lungs. It was like severe fatigue, severe psychiatric symptoms. At one point to winter time, I went out barefoot in the snow and I'm like, wait a minute, there's something. And I've never behaved erratically like that before. When you say psychiatric systems, just so things going on, just so people know. So that's one instance you like just went outside without shoes, snow. What else did you see happening neurologically? Because that's something that people just, a lot of times people just attribute it to age, right? You can talk yourself out of it if you want to, as far as what it could be, just knowing that you have symptoms. What other symptoms did you have? Well, with Lyme disease, I'll run through this for the benefit of the audience because my symptoms aren't necessarily going to be the same as other people's symptoms. That's the one thing that everybody should remember is each person can respond differently to Lyme, which is generally transmitted by a tick bite, but can also be transmitted from mother to baby in utero. Okay. So when you get bit by a tick, Lyme is a type of bacteria called a spirochete. It's like a corkscrew, very similar to syphilis. When it gets in your skin, it can drill through, you know, tissue and get to anywhere in your body. And depending on your immune system and the specific strain of Lyme, you might get a mild case that's easily treatable, or you might get a serious case that requires intensive treatment for many years. Okay. So common symptoms in the summertime or anytime you have flu-like symptoms without congestion, no chest congestion, no coughing, no seizing. You feel like you have a bad flu and nothing else is going on. That's a very common presentation of Lyme. If you go to the doctor, they're probably going to assume you have the flu and just going to wait it down and not eat Lyme is not going to be even on their radar. So that's a common system, but usually that's not enough for the mainstream doctor to say, hey, we should treat this person for Lyme. Other common symptoms are swelling and pain in the large joints. And usually it's, you know, one knee, you know, the left knee or the right knee. With me, it was first the left knee, my clutch knee, because I was driving a manual transmission. And I thought, okay, I, that might have been a coincidence. That might have triggered it. Maybe the injury might have provided an opening for the line to say, hey. This- yeah, the repetitive motion. That's what my doctor said is, well, have you had trauma in your right knee before? Yeah. Like, yeah, well, the running I did and stuff. Yeah. So kind of or. Yeah, so flu-like symptoms, a migratory joint pain, also unexplained fatigue. You just feel tired. You know, you're in good shape. You feel tired, but you don't feel like you've got the flu or anything else. And those are some of the most basic symptoms. In other cases, there's three stages of the Lyme. Early Lyme is the easiest to treat and usually can be successful treatly treated with a couple of weeks of antibiotics. If treatment is delayed, the mind can progress and invade your brain and central nervous system and heart. And that's where it can cause a lot of psychiatric problems. Now with me, it didn't necessarily cause, but it magnified existing tendencies. I've always had a tendency for anxiety and, and occasional depression. You know, if I, if something bad happened, I'd be depressed and then it bounced out of it. But mine seemed to magnify those tendencies. So mine can trigger any type of psychiatric illness or magnify an existing tendency to any psychiatric illness. So that's where I was like, you know, I was just like, 
this is not me. You know, I've never had these psychiatric symptoms. I've been a little anxious before, but not crippling anxiety. So in 2013, I finally found a doctor after going to six and I'm lucky because I only went to six regular doctors before I went to a doctor who understood Lyme. Well, Bruce, real quick, what were these other doctors saying to you presenting these symptoms? And what is the general feeling these doctors are sending you off with? Well, I went to one infectious disease specialist. In that point, I had done some research and, you know, I've been diagnosed with Lyme. I'd like to, you know, get your help to get better. And he said, look at my records. He said, you've had, you know, 28 days of antibiotics. You don't have Lyme. And I said, well, wait a minute. Here's some research that shows Lyme can persist. And he's like, don't believe everything you hear on the internet. This is peer reviewed research. Mm. And it, at that point he said, okay, well, I won't be able to help you. And that is very common to have doctors, not just dismissive to be hostile and malign patients to say, it's all in your head, you know, referring to a psychiatrist or whatever. So once I found this Lyme literate doctor and keep in mind, Lyme is just the tip of the iceberg. We really should be thinking about tick-borne diseases because usually it's Lyme combined with other, in my case, Lyme and Babesia and immune response and so forth. If you have a weak immune system, Lyme is going to affect you more than somebody with a strong immune system. So in 2013, I found this really great doctor. He had great hunches and on a hunch, he put me on this very strong anti-malarial medication with an addition to antibiotics for Lyme, within 10 days, it was astonishing. I felt 20 years younger. It's like, well, I had forgotten what it was like to be well. I didn't realize how sick I was until I got better. And that's important for your listeners to remember that sometimes you get used to it and you think this is just normal. This is the way it is. I'm getting older, but don't accept that because you lose perspective if you've, if you've had a chronic condition for such a long time. Absolutely. Now, in my case, that lasted about three weeks and I relapsed while I was still under treatment. Now, this was not a Lyme relapse. This is a combination of Lyme and Babesia, but apparently the Babesia mutated so fast that even though I got better, I was still taking the medicine, it mutated and was no longer effective. Yeah. yeah. So now back to Lyme, Lyme, there's some big controversy. It's, Lyme is one of the most controversial diseases in existence. Lyme disease was discovered in the uh, early 80s, around the same time AIDS was discovered. AIDS, you didn't get a lot of attention because it was mainly thought to be a gay disease. But once celebrities started to get it and people realized that anybody could get it and it could kill you, yeah. it got a lot of attention and a lot of money. Lyme is more subtle where it can kill people, but that's pretty rare, but it, it can rob you of life and still, you know, allow you to function somewhat. So it did not get much attention and funding in the early stages. Around 2000, a medical society called the Infectious Diseases Society of America came out with guidelines for diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease. Now, the, the Infectious Diseases Society of America also is called IDSA for short. Now, these guidelines were based on a very narrow definition of Lyme. And this goes back to 1994. There was a conference on 
how to define Lyme because when you have a new disease it, and CDC wants to estimate how prevalent it is, how many people get it. Our government agency wants to figure this out and own it. Right. Yeah. So what is Lyme? So they came up with this definition of Lyme, which is tied very closely to patents hold and held by the IDSA members. You need to hear that because you can't dismiss that. That is a huge part of this. That's what Chris Newby, her whole book, Bitten, and the documentary Under Our Skin exposed that as a real thing. Yeah. So there's a couple ways, according to the official line, to diagnose Lyme disease. Now, it's well agreed that Lyme disease should be a clinical diagnosis, which means that it should be based on the judgment and experience of your doctor. Regardless of what any guidelines say, your doctor needs to look at the whole picture and make a clinical judgment. In terms of CDC counting cases of Lyme, they require a couple things. One is you have a bullseye rat, which they say is present in 70 to 80% of the time. Now, we now know that that's not true because most people do not get the rash or the rash doesn't look like a bullseye. 60% don't see a rash, something like that. It's hard to say, but a CDC's figure of 70 to 80% see a rash is way off. It's probably closer to 30 or 40%. Okay. But if you have a rash, that's pretty definite indication you do have Lyme. Mm -hmm. The problem is doctors might say, okay, that's the spider bite or something like that. So that's what, yes, you have cellulitis. What? Yeah. Even if you go in and say, you know, I think this might be a tick. This could yeah. be a tick bite. The other way to get counted as a confirmed case of Lyme is to have a positive test according to the CDC criteria. Okay. And now the CDC criteria is very narrow because they want to make sure it's hundred percent. That's really a case of Lyme. The problem is when they defined Lyme, it was defined by uh, researchers who had patents on vaccines and the Lyme test. So they had influence on the CDC criteria. And for example, when you get bit by a tick and get Lyme disease, your immune system generally produces antibodies. And there's a type of antibody called IgG that shows up early in the disease. There's another type called IgM that shows up after about a month. So according to CDC's criteria, there are 10 antibodies that they'll count as, you know, possible Lyme antibodies, but you have to have five of the 10 to be considered a confirmed case of Lyme disease. What if you have four of the 10 or three of the 10? And some of these other ones are very specific to Lyme. It is possible that you might just have two bands that are yeah, they don't cross-react with any other thing but Lyme, but you don't count according to the surveillance definition. And that's by design, okay? Now, the problem is the IDSA in their guidelines says you have to have five out of 10 to be diagnosed and treated with Lyme. They've taken that surveillance definition and turned it into a treatment guideline and by doing that, the IDSA and their guidelines ensure that the sickest patients don't test positive. And the problem is, if you have a healthy immune system, you might show the five out of 10, but if your, your immune system is weakened in any way, you're going to have less of those bands 
you go to a doctor who IDSA, major medical society, here's what the guidelines say. It's okay. She's only got four out of 10 bands and you don't have Lyme, no treatment. And then with delayed treatment, Lyme can progress and invade your central nervous system even hard and become a lot more serious. A common symptom for me is pain, not really pain, but like warmth and stiffness in the back of the neck. Now where that comes from, that means the Lyme bacteria has invaded the dura matter, which surrounds your skull and it makes it inflamed. So when that happened to me at first, I thought, well, I must've had like a whiplash or something like that, but it's happened enough. I know when I get that pain, warmth in the back of the neck, that I'm having a flare of Lyme. Now, of course it's different for everybody else. So the infectious diseases society of America had a lot of financial interest tied to this narrow de definition of Lyme because the vaccine that they had patents on it were dependent on that CDC criteria. So if the CTC's criteria or IDSA's own criteria were broadened to reflect the true incidence of Lyme, their patents and vaccine would be worthless. Because why? Because it would be shown that, see with the narrow definition of Lyme that's tied closely to the vaccine, and this is like 60% of the cases. So if, if the Lyme disease definition is broadened, then it's going to be shown that the vaccine is not really that effective. The vaccine is tied to a very specific strain of Lyme, and there are multiple strains of Lyme disease. And with the good news is that they're developing an anti-tick vaccine that'll protect you from any tick-borne disease because one tick bite can transmit multiple diseases. So you know, a vaccine for Lyme, the original vaccine Lyrex was pulled off the market because of a lot of adverse effects. It was only 70% effective, but that was according to this narrow criteria. 70% of the people that actually fit that criteria, not the, exactly. the outliers are out there that are so many more. Exactly. So the anti-tick vaccine works by creating antibodies that make the tick get sick. When it bites you and starts sucking your blood, it gets sick and it detaches from you. So that covers a lot of ground. So there's a lot of hope for that. But in the meantime, it's been 40 years since Lyme was discovered and a lot of money has gone down the drain. Hundreds of millions of dollars have gone down the drain in federal funding focused on research, it just perpetuates the dog, that narrow definition of Lyme disease, where patients, you get two weeks, maybe four weeks max of antibiotics and you're done. Yeah. And then you're not, and it could feel better and say that worked. And then it could be a month, a year or a couple of years Yeah, before you feel sick again. And it could be something totally different. Yeah. So some advice to the listeners, if you have any unexplained joint swelling, flu-like symptoms without congestion, fatigue that you can't really explain, or, you know, neck pain, find a doctor who's experienced with tick-borne disease. Now there's another group called ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. They've produced their own guidelines, whereas the IDSA guidelines are presented as the law. Amanda, even though they're guidelines, it's all the physicians. It's their group. Yeah. So ILADS came out with a competing set of guidelines that really focused on the individual patient and the clinicians, the doctor's clinical judgment. So what did IDSA do? They saw ILADS as a competitor. So 
the IDSA doctors started turning in ILADS doctors to medical boards who treated beyond their guidelines. So even though these guidelines were just you know, voluntary, the IDSA enforced them by initiating medical board investigations against very well-qualified doctors. Bruce, the purposes of doing that was to why? Everybody might be going, well, why on earth would they do something like that? To maintain their monopoly and their patents on testing and vaccines. The IDSA doctors also testified as expert witnesses in lawsuits against these doctors. The infectious disease doctor I went to that says, I'm not going to give you antibiotics before I get asked for them. She even wanted to know things like, you know, do I have sex with men? Like, why is that relevant? You know, I'm heterosexual, but why are you even asking that question? Yeah. And it turned out she was the one who turned my doctor who got my bet. She turned him into the medical ward. So, so I saw both ends of the spectrum that, and I'm sure they both thought, you know, this other infectious disease doctor thought she was doing was right, but she was adhering to the IDSA guidelines. Now, there is a federal antitrust suit against IDSA in progress. It was filed in 2017. This is very significant because it's a major antitrust suit. It alleges that IDSA conspired with the largest health insurers in the country and the authors of the guidelines to produce bogus guidelines that would allow the insurers to deny treatment, expensive long-term treatment to patients. So there's the financial interest. And these same doctors serve as consultants for these health insurer companies. And some of them actually served on the boards that evaluated appeals for medical claims. That they also had interest in the medicine. Yeah. And the patents. Like, you just follow the money. Yeah. So obvious someone like me. And I am not the sharpest tool in the shed, people. And I can see, I hate to say it, but it's like conspiracy. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. And CDC and NIH are connected to the IDSA because so many infectious disease doctors are members of that organization. And CDC actually been promoting the IDSA guidelines and the IDSA point of view and completely dismissing ILADS as a viable perspective on Lyme disease treatment. So CDC actually published a statement that they believe the IDSA guidelines represent the best available medical evidence for treatment of Lyme disease. Oh, that sounds completely opposite than what you're saying. So CDC is endorsing IDSA. Now, it turns out that the CDC officials that endorse and promote IDSA actually hold membership and are members of IDSA. Okay. So there's this okay. pretty glaring conflict of interest there. Now, in, in 2017, I filed a legal petition against CDC because it's against the law that governs the ethical conduct of executive branch employees to provide preferential treatment to an organization. So I filed a legal petition about CDC's violation of the law by providing preferential treatment of IDSA guidelines by promoting those guidelines and neglecting to mention competing guidelines for ILADS. Right. Where that's where the controversy comes in is they're only doing their guidelines. Yeah. And it happened to be the IDSA guidelines got removed from the National Guideline Clearinghouse 
because they hadn't been updated. And, and the ILADS guidelines were the only guidelines cleared by the National Guidelines Clearinghouse. Even after that, CDC continued to endorse and promote the IDSA guidelines. Now, since the antitrust suit was filed and since my petition was filed, CDC has removed the links to the IDSA guidelines. In the response to my petition, uh, the director of CDC's Division of Active-Borne Disease dropped his membership in IDSA. So we got a little bit of progress. We got a little bit of progress there, but the scientists at CDC and the papers they publish show that they still uh, favor the IDSA guidelines. You know, the problem is not solved just by removing the link. Now back to the antitrust right. case, you know, started in 2017, so it's five years in, it's currently under appeal. Eight largest health insurers in the country settled the antitrust suit. There's a settlement. They agreed that they conspired to, you know, with these doctors to deprive these patients of treatment and, you know, coverage that got zero media coverage. Right. I didn't know that till I. Yeah. Even though it should have been big news. Now the lawsuit is under appeal. So IDSA is currently the sole defendant. So this law firm, why would they take a case like this if there wasn't something there? Because it costs millions of dollars to prosecute an antitrust suit. And they've won round one against the health insurers. And now they're still going up and against IDSA. But why would a law firm take such a risk if they didn't have a very good idea that they would ultimately prevail? Right. And apparently from what I've heard, there's a lot of research went into the lawsuit and it was vetted by some professors at Harvard Law School to say, okay, this is a viable, you have a viable case. This is worth pursuing for its own merits, but it also might be a good precedent for similar lawsuits against maybe class action suits, in addition to antitrust suits against any guidelines, any medical society that has got guidelines or medical products that harm patients. And so that's going to take a while to play out, but that's. To give you an idea of how controversial Lyme is, it's not just a little bit controversial. It's a major antitrust issue, and it should be a scandal on the order of Watergate. It's a scandal. Yes, it is. And I think as we, you know, with COVID and all this stuff, you just started picking at the scab here, right? Mm. There could be way more. Well, and some other issues that, oh, by the way, happy Mother's Day related to all the mothers out there. <laughs> and there's some disparities in treatment of tick-borne diseases. And shocking to who would you say? Women? Well, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> so everybody for the actual Lyme disease itself. But with Lyme disease, Lyme patients as a group are generally dismissed and marginalized by a lot of healthcare providers because they've been taught through the IDSA guidelines that you don't meet these criteria. You know, it must be some sort of mental illness or some syndrome like lupus or fibromyalgia, and you can't have Lyme. I had a doctor on that says fibromyalgia is what she calls fibromyalgia. <laughs> She's like, no, that is just a symptom. That is a name that you've given a bunch of symptoms. So fibromyalgia is a common uh, misdiagnosis of actual cases of Lyme, lupus, not all cases of lupus, but even more sinister is the links between Lyme and other infections and neurodegenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis yep. and Alzheimer's disease. Yep. This is huge. This is so big. 
Yeah. So a lot of cases, people are, my housemate, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She had lesions on her brain MRI. She had all the symptoms, but it was treatable Lyme disease. So now back to, and by the way, I believe this is National Women's Health Week. Yes, we were saying that. You know, it's shout out to all the moms there, especially the moms with, you know, that are battling Lyme or caring for children with Lyme. And Lyme discriminates, Lyme patients are discriminated against commonly. Women are affected worse than men for a couple of reasons. One is, unfortunately, male-dominated mainstream medicine tends to be more dismissive of women that have these non-specific complaints. I'm tired, I'm achy. They're like, well, have you seen a psychiatrist? You know, it's not even on the radar. Now, too much stress. Try to take a vacation. Take warm baths at night. I've heard that. One of the many reasons for this podcast is to collect, connect, and share information that will add to your life. It is my honor and pleasure to share products with you that I buy, use, and believe in that are high quality, sustainable, responsible to our earth, and that actually work. One product I have been using for almost a year now, every day, and now twice a day with the diagnosis of my Lyme disease is collagen. Collagen is a buzzword right now because collagen is a protein that makes up 30% of our bodies. And like everything else, as we age, we lose it. Fine lines, brittle nails, dull hair, achy joints, dry skin are all part of why collagen is so essential. So let me share why Elaine Collagen, the brand I use, is in my opinion more effective than what's out there on those shelves. It is easy to use, tasteless, and dissolves into any beverage. It's non-GMO, and it's from cows raised in Spain, and no chemicals are used for its extraction. Bingo, speak in my language. You can experience the benefits for yourself and receive 15% off by using the code SECONDWIND, all one word, at checkout at elainewellness.com. And if you want to know more about Elaine and her Second Wind story, listen to her episode the title is Plot Twist. There's no such thing as anti-aging from March 15, 2021. Now, back to the episode. Yeah. It's not uncommon for Lyme patients to see 20 doctors before they find one who really understands it. And even those doctors are still learning because it's such a complex issue. So women are generally discriminated and it's almost systemic just because of the, you know, and not all male doctors are like that, but even some female doctors. So it's not, but biologically, woman's immune system is different from a man's. And there are studies that show this CDC endorsed two-tier test as part of the IDSA guidelines. Research shows, and this is pretty strong research, that in any stage of the disease, for all patients, it's less than 50% accurate. If you had a negative line test, there's a 50% chance that that's wrong and you really have Lyme because part of the reason is because that CDC criteria is so narrow. If you've got three of five or four or five, it's okay. That's negative, but you really have Lyme. Now, the research also shows that it misses 50% of everybody, but it misses up to 70% of women. So for some reason, women do not melt the same type of immune response to men do. So it's a double whammy. And also a lot of women are mothers. A mother that has Lyme 
and has a child, mine can be passed from mother to child in utero. So you can have cases where the mother has Lyme disease, doesn't get diagnosed or treated. It could pass on to the child. And then the mother is sick. She's a caregiver. Her child is sick. She has, you know, may have to quit her job. It can affect the whole family. Well, it does affect the whole family. Yeah. I'm so glad I don't have small children right now. Yeah. I don't know how I could have done it. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And just to not even be diagnosed a lot. Of, and as we get older too, you could have had Lyme like me, a part of Lyme, a co-infection of Lyme when I was like 12 that just reared its ugly head for the last, well, I'm 56. So for 44 years of different instances and just different things that were unexplained. And then as you get into your menopausal years, again, symptoms can be completely dismissed as part of menopause. They'll say, oh, you're just having hot flashes. Well, you do have these hot spells with Lyme. You can with the different infections. And it's different than a hot flash. But how do you explain that to a doctor? Yeah. And your hormones are all screwed up. But the minute you have babies, you're already in a hormonal tug of war with your body. And your body's trying like heck to get you back to where you need to be. And we're depleted. And then Lyme can just wreak havoc from there on in. Yeah. So pregnancy affects the immune response. So women are less likely to get a positive test, but pregnant women are even less likely because of the impact of pregnancy on immune response. So another controversy with Lyme is you know, does two weeks or four weeks of doxycycline cure it for most people. Right. Now the research shows that 30%, at least 30% of patients who get treated for Lyme disease go on to develop chronic persistent symptoms. IDSA says that- Wait, wait, back up for one second. So like what kind of symptoms? Just so our listeners who may think this could be something. Well, the same symptoms you have, you know, unexplained fatigue, pain, and so forth. And the IDSA says that's post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. The infection is gone. You know, it's something else. It's in your head or it's autoimmune. And research has shown that Lyme disease has the ability to go dormant. And that's why a lot of people get better and then they get under stress. So it could be dormant for many years. Your immune system can take care of it and then it can be reactivated. So the official figure is 10 to 20% of the people who get early treatment have these persistent symptoms that we call chronic Lyme disease because at least I believe from the evidence I've seen that it's really an active infection, although, you know, there could be other factors. And what that means is that's just those that get treated early because of the inaccuracy of the two-tier test, people that get treated later are more likely to develop chronic Lyme disease. Right. And women are more likely than men, almost four times more likely, according to one study, to develop chronic Lyme disease. So there you have a third thing. Women are less likely to test positives. They're more likely to be dismissed by the medical society. And they're more likely, many times more likely to develop long-term Lyme disease. And, you know, back to my second wind, you know, when I started out as an advocate in 2014, I joined up with this group called the Mayday Project. We actually protested at IDSA's headquarters. You know, we met with the president of IDSA about, you know, updating their guidelines and so forth. And we really had an effective protest because we got their attention. We got to meet with their leadership. Unfortunately, that didn't change anything, 
But during that, I realized how fortunate I was. I was very sick and unable to work and a lot of out of pocket. But I saw all these other people in wheelchairs and at these protests, it was 80% women. And like, mm. hey, you know, and a lot of these were mothers and children. So that's when I got thinking about why are there so many more women seem to be impacted by lying? And that's when I realized that I was lucky and that I could use my skills. This is my second win because I saw, okay, these people, especially these mothers, children, and families are suffering. I can use some of my skills to help alleviate that suffering by engaging in advocacy, pointing out, you know, the issues with the IDSA guidelines, then eventually working with Congress to get more funding. And I knew Lyme affected mothers and children, you know, just from being at the protest, but I, I didn't know that it could be transmitted from mother to baby until a couple of years ago. Then I decided that as an advocate, after we spent about two years with the May Day Project protesting IDSA, they announced they were going to update their guidelines. You know, nothing more for us to do. May Day was a good thing for a while, but then it sort of fell apart. And then I formed my organization, the Patient-Centered Care Advocacy Group, with a focus on CDC. And it was a hardball focus because I knew People were being harmed by CDC's endorsement of the IDSA guidelines. So I filed ethics complaints. I filed complaints with the Office of the Inspector General. I filed legal petitions. And, you know, some of them had to be cleared at the level of the CDC director for the response. Mm. Now, that was for a couple of years. And then I met some of the people at CDC and extended an olive branch because there's some nice people there. And once I got to know them, I'm like, hey, maybe there's another approach. Maybe instead of beating them up, because, you know, I filed a lot of legal actions. I mentioned it by name and press releases. Well, you're going after the unjustness. Of course, it's there's a little bit of fuel behind that, yeah. right? You're a little angry. Yeah. So I met some of the people and they said, hey, and I just sort of reach out to it because at that point, the HHS, the Federal Government Tick-Borne Disease Working Group was formed to bring people together the line advocates and CDC and NIH to, you know, solve this problem. So I met the key people at CDC and they said, Hey, you know, feel free to come to us if you have any of these issues, because we might be able to work these out without going through these, you know, not in so many words. So I realized, Hey, maybe there's another way to work at that. So now I am reaching out to CDC and looking for ways that I can work with them to advance this research. So after a couple of years of going after CDC and getting, you know, some results, but it's, you know, like going up, up against a big concrete focus, I realized there's a lot of new money for Lyme disease research as a result of advocacy groups over the past four or five years. Right. Lyme disease at CDC was getting funded at about 10 million a year for many, many decades. Now it's up to like 25, 30 million a year. It's still dropping the bucket, but NIH funding has increased by almost 50 million a year in new money is going towards Lyme disease research. Now I thought, well, wait a minute, a lot of that past research is going to these people that have these conflicts of interest and are defendants in the antitrust lawsuit. What can we do? Throwing money is not going to solve the problem. Right. So that's when I shifted my focus to NIA and I was working full time then. So. I tried to focus where I could really make the most impact because I went back to work full-time once I'd got better and, and was doing the advocacy work. So I 
met up with a Sue Faber of Lyme Hope and learned more about congenital Lyme disease, which congenital means present at birth. That's also called maternal fetal transmission or in utero transmission. And I joined up with her and a group of mothers who were affected by Lyme disease. And we started a group called Mothers Against Lyme. And that was two years ago. The original idea was just to have a rally at NIH and meet with the NIH people like the AIDS activists did and say, hey, we need help. So I wrote an email to the NIH Lyme disease program manager asking for her opinion and said, I'm working with a group of mothers. We're concerned about congenital Lyme disease. We're thinking of doing an event at NIH. What do you think? She took that query up to NIH leadership and came back and said, and proposed a meeting with us that would include their senior scientists, research program managers for the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, and from Fauci's group, NIAD, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. There's a name people can recognize. Yeah. Now, Sue had made some contact with that NIH program manager, so she was already interested in the subject, but I was surprised that my first email just, hey, what do you think of this? Was it really a proposal? She came back and they rolled out the red carpet. Yeah. Now, a lot of people in the Lyme community are very skeptical of anything NIH does because there was NIH and Lyme advocates were almost at war 20 years ago, and the Lyme program manager sued one of the Lyme groups, and they countersued. It's like, wait a minute, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Right. We work on this together. So people were saying, well, be careful. They're just doing that to make it look good. And like, well, even if they are have ulterior motives, we still want to engage with them. Even if they're our arch enemy and they say, hey, we can meet, let's discuss things. So we have this meeting set up for May 2020, confirmed they were bringing, NIH is like a multinational corporation. They were bringing in senior officials from two institutes. They reserved a meeting room. Yeah, we planned out the agenda, even the seating and everything. And then COVID hit. Mm. Boom. You know, we persisted and we wrote a letter to NIH Director Francis Collins that outlined our concerns and very specific types of research we wanted NIH to either conduct themselves or to fund for external researchers. And part of our team included an OBGYN from ILADS that had experience with congenital Lyme, a nationally renowned uh, child psychiatrist who sees these children with these developmental disorders that she can link back to Lyme being transmitted from mothers. So we had some experts involved. We laid out a very detailed research agenda. We want NIH to investigate the impact of Lyme disease and pregnancy on immune response and so forth. And since we didn't have the meeting set up, we had to postpone the meeting because of COVID. We wrote that letter. We got a nice letter back that said, well, everything's okay. We're concerned about this and we're really doing everything we can. And we sent them a pretty strongly word letter back that said, well, wait a minute. You say. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> the tick-borne disease working group, the official working group that's currently in progress, designated pregnant women and children as special populations who suffered disproportionately from Lyme disease. So we came back to NIH and our response was, well, the tick-borne disease working group says women and children suffered disproportionately. You say you care about them, but you don't mention this in your strategic plan or anywhere their Lyme disease. So you're not backing up. So, you know, we sent them a pretty strong response, nicely worded. 
And then we eventually got the meeting with them on December 7th, 2020. And during that meeting, we had several mothers talk about their experience of, you know, how they got sick, you know, got Lyme and, you know, and the impact it had on them and transmitting it to their children and the type of research. And at that point, we also had a congressional mandate. Several groups had proposed language attached to NIH's appropriations that directed them to issue requests for proposals for research on maternal fetal transmission of Lyme disease. So we sort of had a congressional mandate at that point, and we brought that up in the meeting and said, okay, this is what Congress has attached to your appropriations. What are you going to do to advance this research? And it was surprising that there was a lot of pushback because we were thinking, okay, NIH, you know, needs to make this happen. And they kept coming back to this type of research is investigator initiated, which means the researchers have to come to NIH and say, hey, here's an idea for a grant. We want funding. Our response, wait a minute, NIH needs to show some leadership, but they should be researching it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They should be putting these notices out and doing some encouragement. And the NIH people said, well, the Lamarine community can help. So we called their bluff and we organized a webinar, Lyme disease and pregnancy, state of the science and research support for maternal fetal transmission of Lyme. And we came back to NIH and said, okay, we've done our part because you said you need the community to help. So yeah, we put together this bulletin that summarized all the research opportunities. We sent it out to universities and researchers in the community that say, hey, there's money available for research for Lyme disease that can be used for these types of studies. And then we organized this webinar and we came back to NIH and said, okay, we did our part. Now we want you to do your part right. in participating in this research webinar. And they agreed. They had to go through a lot of clearance because we're a new group, no track record. And here we were saying, hey, we're going to do a webinar about the state of the science. We had some experts you know, to present at the webinar. And then NIH agreed. They wanted us to change the title because they didn't want to mention funding. They're not supposed to ask for money. They're supposed to talk about the science. So we had this webinar a year ago and it was attended by a lot of scientists from major research institutions, a lot of advocacy groups. And it was really a great example of how against the odds, this group of, you know, mothers and mother advocates, you know, gets COVID and NIH saying no, that we went from not being in existence to being side by side with NIH, you know, wow. participation in the webinar. And there's actually some researchers that are, I don't know if any grants have been actually funded. But we have researchers that are working on applications. And another thing NIH did is they issued a request for, it's called a notice of special interest, which is a bulletin they send to research that says, hey, we're interested in this topic, send us applications. They issued a notice of special interest that specifically mentioned gestational Lyme disease. Oh, wow. Now, gestational is when it, the mother has it. They didn't want to say congenital because that, that's admitting too much. Well, another, that's all another can of worms, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a baby step, gets us in the right direction. Oh yeah, exactly. So what's really exciting is that the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundations is really amazing group that's doing a lot of privately funded research for Lyme. They're sponsoring a forum on what they call perinatal Lyme disease. Perinatal just means, you know, in utero transmission, it's all the same thing, maternal, fetal transmission, congenital Lyme, perinatal, 
but they are hosting a scientific conference, a brainstorming session specifically on this topic and top researchers and people from CDC and everybody's going to get together to brainstorm. So it's like, wow. so Mothers Against Line has sort of paved the way for more collaboration. And I am currently reaching out to CDC because NIH has shown that they can do their part. They really need to do a lot more. You know, we'll get to that, but we need CDs to set up pregnancy registries in line and then varies because we need CDC to do some studies to show how big a problem is it? We need to track it. Yeah. So we need to know how often does maternal fetal transmission occur, but more importantly, we need to know what the links are between congenital line and adverse birth outcomes. Research has shown that when Lyme infects a pregnant woman and the woman is treated, 12% still have adverse birth outcomes, including fetal death and general abnormalities. You know, untreated, it's like half of the births are adverse outcomes. But even when treated with standard antibiotics, almost one in eight births results in an adverse outcome. It's like, wait a minute, this should be a wake-up call because, first of all, CDC says, you know, they follow the IDSA thing that says that, well, they... They should be cured of Lyme. So we want CDC to do studies on the incidence of adverse birth outcomes, whether treated or untreated, and also long-term studies on links between congenital transmission of Lyme and developmental disorders. Because there is evidence that when Lyme is transmitted from mother to baby, sometimes it's dormant and gets you know, activated later so that the child might develop some, you know, autism spectrum or all kinds of. Autism can come out and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this perfectly healthy, normal baby now suddenly isn't hitting these markers. Yeah. And yeah, there's a huge tie, you think, I think, and we're starting to see between yeah. this spectrum autism and Lyme. Yeah. Now, one thing I should mention is, I almost forgot this, if any of your listeners, any mothers out there or people are concerned about the impact of Lyme disease on pregnant women and their children, we have a website at mothersagainstline.org, and it has all the information for the pregnant woman should know if she is in a Lyme endemic area. And mm -hmm. it has, you know, unexplained symptoms. It has links to the letter we wrote to NIH Director Francis Collins. So that's a good resource for information. Other good resources for information are LymeDisease.org. That's a good one-stop shop. If somebody's new to Lyme, there's a lot of good Lyme groups out there, uh, Global Lyme Alliance, Project Lyme. Support groups too. Yeah. Lots of support groups, yeah. Yeah, a lot of local support groups. Well, not the answer. And I have found... I don't need a support group. I have my podcast. I have all these people, but I joined this support group and man, does it make a difference to just know you're not losing your mind. Yes, that actually is a symptom. Oh, there's people who've had it worse. Oh, there's people who have it better. It's just not going it alone. It's huge. Yeah. Now for me, helping others is part of my healing process. You know, it makes me feel better when I help others. So that's really, I do this as a volunteer. Yeah. You know, my compensation is helping people get better, improving health outcomes. And, you know, we've made a lot of progress in the last couple of years, but we're 40 years behind. Yeah. And one thing I should mention is it's widely thought that Lyme exists only in certain geographic areas. 
according to CDC. Thank you. If you think that you're in a Lyme designated area, even if you think you're not, you are. Because of this narrow definition of Lyme based on this one strain, it appears that Lyme is very geographically limited to the, you know, the upper Midwest and New England states. But there's plenty of research shows that the ticks that carry Lyme disease are present in every state. And you can get Lyme, you know, in Florida and Texas, even in Montana, in some areas. So regardless of where you live, there is a risk of Lyme disease. And then the fact that there's some research that shows it can be sexually transmitted, you know, there's other ways to get it than just getting it from a tick. So cats get it as well. Yeah. So that's important. And if you're in one of those states, go to LymeDisease.org or ILADS, and there's some doctor referral links where you can get links to uh, specialists in tick-borne diseases. Because if you go to a primary care or... Um, they're not trained. They're not giving you the information you need. It's just not part of their spectrum right now. And not only are they not trained, but they are misinformed by the IDSA guidelines. It's bad enough that they don't know, but they've been told that you get better after two to four weeks of doxycycline and that if the symptoms persist, they're due to something other than Lyme disease. Right. So Bruce, let me ask you this. You were sick, 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 sick. You still went out and said, I want to fix this. What made you join and do all this? It's like forever work. It's a lot of work. And when you're sick and you have Lyme, you don't have a lot of, I mean, I don't have a lot of energy. Right. How did you have the energy to pour yourself into this work? Well, I didn't have the energy on its own. I was really angry. So what I did is, is I decided I channeled my anger and then I drew and my fellow patients who I collaborated with for advocacy provided energy, just being together, having somebody that a common experience. So by channeling my anger, it was part of the healing process just to interact with other people. And a lot of times isolation is a big issue for patients with chronic illness. So you feel isolated, you get depressed, and then your immune system gets affected. But by being connected through advocacy reduces that sense of isolation. And yeah, to me, that helped as part of the healing process It's just interacting. And when we did these protests at IDSA, some of the people that were really sick, they would crash and they, they would be bed bound for weeks afterwards from the event. And I saw that and I said, okay, I only crash for one day. I'm just going to use what little energy I have and channel that right. and do something to make a difference. Which I'm so glad you have done that. Where are you now in your health journey? Well, I am in remission now. I think my Lyme, I think I've gotten Lyme or Lyme-like infection several times. My main problem is Babesia, which is infection in my red blood cells. So I'm lucky my doctor has a microscope. He can see these things in my red blood cells and aren't supposed to be there. So I'd been in remission for almost a full year. And then I relapsed to December. But fortunately, there's a new medication that I'm on where the Babesia doesn't develop resistance to. So I'm, I'm taking that and I'll probably have to take that for maybe another four to six months. So. I'm currently in a state of remission, but I keep my fingers crossed because every time I think, hey, I'm better. And this is a lesson for anybody that when you feel better and you start wanting to, you know, get out there and do stuff. Do the stuff you love to do. Yeah. Take it slow. Take it slow. Yeah. Because thankfully you feel better. But I, you know, I, so many times I'm like, yeah, I'm better. Let's go do this and that. And then boom, you know, 
come crashing back down. So it's true. There's a fine line between knowing how far you can push yourself to be normal again. I've had a hard time figuring out where that line is because you feel so good and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go do this. And I'm so excited. And then you start gooing and you're like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> and you sit your butt back down and you're like, that's out of the question. Oh, some other piece of treatment advice. Well, and everybody's different. Some people react differently to antibiotics and respond to natural treatments. But the idea is that it, you have a healthy immune system, you know, antibiotics, you know, to get you part of the way there. If you don't have a healthy immune system, you need more that you need immune system support in addition to, you know, maybe antibiotics or whatever. But one thing that helps me a lot is sunshine, fresh air, and just movement and doing something. Because there are times when you're sick and you really need to rest. And there are times when you're sick and actually, you know, movement and sunshine and interaction with people, it's therapeutic. So that's one of the most important for me is having whether it's support group, you know, friends and family to deal with that isolation. So you're talking to people, whether it's on Zoom, some days, you know, it might be the only thing I do is I take the recycling out and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do one thing. You know, I'm just, I'm going to get out there and, you know, drive. And that's my goal of the day, you know, so take it one day at a time. And there is hope, but we've still got a long way to go. Like I said, we're 40 years behind. Thank you, Bruce, for gosh, this undying work that you're doing. It's so selfless of you to be pouring all the energy you do have into making this a field that will hopefully open up and help so many people. And gosh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to just have, it almost seems to me that everybody needs this test available that actually is correct and tests you for Lyme. Almost, you know, I wish I'd had this test when I was like 16 or 20 or it can cause miscarriages if it's undiagnosed. I had a bunch in the beginning and it very well could have been from Lyme. Little things that, wouldn't it be neat if we just had a predictor test that the slightest thing could prompt a doctor, any doctor, to give you a new Lyme test so that at least you would have an idea that maybe you got bit a long, long time ago or somehow it was transmitted to you a long, long time ago. Yeah. And everybody, no. Well, new tests are a bit under development, but there's been a lot of resistance to them. And a lot of the research money at NIH, instead of going to next generation tests that can confirm if you really have an infection or not, if you're cured or not, they go into refining the two-tier testing that's all it does is show that you've been exposed to Lyme. So these vested interests are still focused on this paradigm that this narrow definition Lyme easy to cure, doesn't cause chronic problems, but there is a lot of money and research going on and a lot of progress in developing these more accurate tests. So unfortunately, primary care doctor is going to order a standard two-tier test that highly reliable. It's less than a coin cost, reliable for all patients and 70% it misses 70% of cases in women. And this is according to a compilation of six research studies on the topic. So we've got a long, long way to go. But just remember, if you get a negative test and you still have these symptoms, you may have Lyme disease. And also keep in mind that it's usually Lyme plus whatever. It could be Lyme plus, get a mold. And Lyme can suppress your immune system and let other things flourish, like Epstein-Barr virus. So... That's why you need a doctor 
who's experienced in all aspects of not just Lyme, but all the associated, you know, immune issues and so forth. And that's where ILADS, if you go to the ILADS website, I think they have a doctor referral and the same at LymeDisease.org. But you have to be an active participant in your cure because these doctors are still learning and what works for one patient may not work for you. Right. I am very fortunate that I do not have Herxheimer reactions very often. That's when the die off from the treatment, when it works, a lot of inflammation. There are people I know that even on modest doses of antibiotics, their symptoms flare terribly and they go through a rough period, maybe a week or two of worsening symptoms before they get better. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also antibiotics can help you with Lyme, but you need to protect your microbiome. Yeah. So uh, propols. Yeah. We'll have Dr. Muth on. By the time this comes out, Dr. Muth would have been on. And she's huge into the hormones and the gut microbiome and how you have to get that right up. And if you've been taking the antibiotics, you're wiped out. You have to work on your gut too in order to help your body help itself. Bruce, if you could wave a magic wand for what you would like to see happen for Lyme, what would be the one thing you would like to see happen? I know there's many. <laughs> what would be the one thing? Well, the, the wide adoption of a test that could confirm the presence of the infection, which would, could tell you if you're cured or actually have the disease. And for that test to be cover all strains of Lyme disease, not just, you know, the CDC, you know, B31 strain. Yeah, you know, if we had that, then everything else is downhill from there, getting that accurate test that takes into account the wide variety of strains of Lyme and Lyme-like illnesses that present like Lyme, but aren't counted as Lyme. Right. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And where are you in your health journey? You're in remission now. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a cure. Can we be cured from Lyme? Can you and I say we don't have Lyme anymore ever? I think that's possible, but until we have that test, we're not going to know. So for now, well, just, you know, think of it. If you get better, you're in remission and just, you know, keep up your diligence. Okay. <laughs> I'd like the answer to be like, of course, you are going to be Lyme free by 2023. Well, I know a lot of people who, who, who have gotten better and have stayed better for many years. So there definitely is hope. And many of these people have been much, much sicker than I have. So there is hope where you can have sustained remission. And, you know, if it's a couple of years, usually you're going to stay well unless you get reinfected or you, you have a relapse under stress. So, you know, you still have to be careful. You do. And I had pulled a tick off of me just last week. And now I'm back on doxycycline. And... I didn't know. I was like, wait a minute, can I get reinfected? Can this actually happen? And the answer is yes. And here I am in Georgia and four out of the five women in my support group that I just started have all recently got another tick bite. Oh, wow. And we're in Georgia. Yeah. And now we're seeing a lot more Lone Star. That seems to be what people are finding right now. The Lone Star tick bite, which is the one that prevents you from being able to eat red meat. It can all transmit a disease similar to Lyme that probably should be called Lyme, but they don't want to. Right. So, yeah, that's a whole nother gamut. Bruce, thank you so much for your information, your time, and your effort. You're like an angel for Lyme disease right now. You're out there fighting the good fight and trying to pave the way for all of us in the future and future generations. And I so appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, and I'm glad to help out. and. Keep up my work to help all these 
patients who are suffering terribly from lack of attention, lack of resources, and these conflicts of interest that are driving policy and treatment guidelines. It's just, you know, it's just a perfect storm of that it shouldn't be this way. But we're making progress. Yeah. It shouldn't. It's messed up for sure. How and where can people find you and Mothers Against Lyme? Well, www.mothersagainstline.org. And then I have a Facebook page for the Patient-Centered Care Advocacy Group, and people can send me messages through that page as well. Perfect. And we'll put all of this in the show notes as well. So Bruce, again, thank you so much for your time today. Always so much to learn. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.